Thanks, Adrian. Thanks, Hannah, for reading. I'd love it if you have Ephesians open. Um, I, I, I love Psalm 103. I hope you do too. I wonder if we'll get to this right at the end today, at the end of chapter 3, uh, when Paul says how uh, that we pray that we'd know how wide and long and how deep the love of Christ is. I just wonder if he had Psalm 103 in mind when um, the psalmist writes, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that wonderful? I, I just think it's such a lovely psalm. Um, anyway, uh, friends, have, um, have your Bible open in front of you too. Please do that. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to jump up and grab one. The other thing you might want to have open in front of you, which <laughs> I don't, um, <laughs> is the outline. There's an outline there for you to follow along. So if you want to write some notes down, I, personally, I always find that helpful. Um, just, there's, today, there's a few things that I'm listing down. And so you might want to jot those things down as I list them, unless you've got a, a perfect memory. But they're also from the text in front of us uh, from Ephesians 3. So you'll see that in a moment. All right. Uh, so Bibles, outlines, uh, and we'll have a, a Q&A at the end as well. So if you've got a question, you can ask a question at the end or make a comment, word of encouragement, that sort of thing. All right. Here's a question to start with for you. How important is the church? Now, don't put your hands up just yet, although we could have asked that question at the start, couldn't we? How important is the church? We got, got a bit of an answer, actually, as we shared before with Beck. Now, for some of us, that might seem... Well, that might be a very sensitive question, possibly. Perhaps we even get a little, little defensive, I don't know. Uh, but for others, it's very, very clear. That question, how important is the church, takes us to the heart of this section of Ephesians 3. And we're really going to look at verses 1 to 13 today. And we'll, but we'll finish with 14 to 21, because it's a great way to finish and a great prayer we'll finish with. The Apostle is very clear about how important the church is. Very clear indeed. Now, we know that Paul was prepared to go to prison so that he might make the gospel clear, uh, a gospel which, remember from last week, unites these warring faction, well, well, warring parties uh, in Christ, Jew and Gentile together. The gospel brings them together. Now, if you missed last week too, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel and the, they, those YouTube uh, sermons on the YouTube go up there every a Tuesday, so um, you can catch up that way. Paul was also aware that when church like this happens, so when those previously warring factions come together, Jew and Gentile come together, well, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, those spir the spiritual dimension of life, see the purposes of God and the wisdom of God being worked out in the day-to-day -day life of believers. Okay, so what about you then? Uh, is there anything for which you would be prepared to go to prison for? Think about that for a moment. Well, something's come up. Not if you get in trouble, by the way. Like if you get in trouble with the law, that's not my thing here. But would you be prepared to go to prison for this good thing, whatever that good thing might be? Another question. What do you think unsettles Satan? Makes him angry. What do you think unsettles Satan? Well, I want to tell you, the answer to both those questions ought to be church. How about we pray and uh, we'll get into this great part of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your, uh, your love for us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the gift of church. 
Uh, we know it's important, um, and so does Paul. And so help us to understand that more and put these things into practice in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I, um, I love a good mystery story. When I was um, younger, my, um, my parents were, were quite big fans of that, uh, that TV show. They actually watched it quite religiously, the BBC show, Midsummer Murders. There it is. Um, that's the oldest one I could find. It's still on TV now, either in reruns, I think. But I, I must admit, as a, as a young teenager, seeing my dad and mum watch this, I think, man, you know, for a small village, they seem to have a rotten luck with murderous violence. <laughs> Gee, I'll tell you what. Um, <laughs> and, of course, there's unsolved mysteries as well, which, uh, you know, who doesn't love the story of Loch Ness Monster and, you know, the Bigfoot in California and the Lithgow Panther. There's my picture of the Lithgow Panther. Um, <laughs> I don't think many people at ADM have heard of the Lithgow Panther. Man, gee, there you go. It's also the Southern Highlands Panther, which sort of goes around. You've got you to be careful you, see that you don't, you don't um, mix up a mystery with a conspiracy theory. That's important advice for life. But the only thing I think more compelling than a mystery is when the mystery is finally solved. That's good. The Apostle Paul explains in this extraordinary passage that there had been a perplexing mystery troubling Israel, God's people for centuries, concerning God's plan of salvation. How would the nations be part of the kingdom of God? How would those promises that go right back to Abraham about all nations coming to God or being can be part of the kingdom of, kingdom of God, how would that be resolved? Well, it's a mystery now solved in the most astonishing way in the coming of the Lord Jesus. Grace revealed. Indeed, the solution to this mystery is displayed in the spiritual realms for all to admire God's wisdom. That's what we read. So come with me to chapter 3, verse 1. 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... So Paul begins here with a for this reason. You see, having explained how Christ's death and resurrection have reconciled people to God, that's that vertical reconciliation we talked about in 2 verses 1 to 10, and to each other, so that's the, well, I guess we could call it the horizontal reconciliation of between each, with each other in church, uh, that's chapter 2, he is about to explain what he therefore prays. For the Ephesians, this church that's unified Jew and Gentile together. So he says, for the sake of you Gentiles. He's really, praying, he's really speaking to these Gentiles. That's what most of the Ephesians is. But then he realises that, well, he must press pause for a moment, must put hold on that uh, and break off to explain what he means in saying he is a prisoner for, the, for their sake. He needs to explain that. He needs to explain his own role in God's plan of salvation to save Gentiles, mostly his readers in Ephesians. And then he'll get back to praying for them in verse 14. Right, So Paul breaks off to explain his ministry and to strengthen his relationship with them by describing his commitment to them and reassuring them that his imprisonment shouldn't cast doubt upon his message or his ministry because he was authorised by God to announce the astonishing mystery made known to me by revelation. You see that? By which the Gentiles can be saved. Indeed, this mystery is what reveals 
the triumphant wisdom of God's eternal plan for his church. And so in verse 13, he completes this sort of digression when he says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged. Don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. Remember, he's in prison at this point. Okay, so that's sort of where it's heading. Let's go back to verse 2. Verse 2, surely you've heard about my administration of God's, about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written about briefly. In regard, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Okay, what's the mystery? <laughs> what's the mystery that's been revealed now through Paul, through the apostles and prophets? It's the next verse. Go to verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. There it is. Didn't know it before, now they know it through Christ. Members together of one body even, sharers together in the promise in Christ. And then Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Now, if he wanted to, uh, well, I think we could easily just put verse 13 here too, as well as after verse 12. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged. Don't be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are for your glory. You see, here's the mystery. Let's put it in, in um, layman's terms, right? Here's the mystery. Grace revealed. The church is for everyone. That's the mystery. And you might just say, why didn't Paul just say that? Well, he sort of did. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the church is for everyone. In other words, anyone can be saved. Anyone. Anyone can be part of God's kingdom, even Gentiles, even non-Jews, Paul is saying. So in verse 6, what Paul does, Paul explains that this salvation, this grace revealed through faith in the gospel, brings three marvellous privileges. And if you want to focus on verse 6, I've got it up on the screen, so just in case you don't know the Bible, you'll see them. But here are three, maybe you can see them now, there are three marvellous, extraordinary privileges of knowing God, of being part of God's church, of the grace being revealed, of Jew and Gentile coming together as God's church. Now, here's the first one. You can see it up there. They are... So uh, Gentiles being part of the church, we're all part of God's people, they are together, they are heirs together with Israel. So Gentiles are not just joining old Israel and taking up all their practices, no, it's a new humanity. Remember that term from last week, a new humanity, heirs together in the promises of God. One completely new people in Christ called Christians and who all now inherit the kingdom of heaven, a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, Isaiah describes heaven. So our inheritance that we share together is being there with our Saviour in heaven, enjoying the presence of God, the abundance of his spirit and the deliverance of the cross. It's hard to describe, I think, accurately how good heaven will be. Our language, I think, just comes short. It falls short. I, I've just said in my notes, it'll be epic. <laughs> uh, it's not good enough, but it'll have to do. And church is just a little taste. Just a little taste. And gee, it's good. Now, so I wasn't, um, I wasn't there 
Uh, I couldn't afford the tickets, but gee, I wish I was. Um, I watched it live on TV. But do you remember, perhaps, um, perhaps you've seen the replays of it, of Kathy Freeman win- winning the gold medal at the Sydney Olympics in 2000. Was anyone there? Oh, did, oh you guys were there. Fantastic. Well, I'm very jealous. That would have been awesome. Um, I'm hoping this description matches your memory of the night. Uh, I think, uh, watching it on TV, it was amazing. Just incredible. Uh, spine tingling and the pressure, too, that was mounted on poor Kathy Freeman, although she had a cool suit to run in. Um, she had to win wearing that thing. Uh, the noise, the, the, the experience, the, the people screaming and shouting, getting right into it. Um, it. It was more incredible than anything else I've ever seen in sport. And I tell you, I'm a sport nut. I'm going to go home today and probably watch three hours of rugby. Um, don't tell me the results. <laughs> but I, I can't help but thinking, when I look at this moment... I can't help but thinking, if this is what it's like praising athletes, yeah, who can run and jump and throw heavy things, how good will it be when the king of heaven comes on stage? That's spine-tingling stuff. And that's what we share together as God's people. We're heirs together, that's our inheritance, heirs together with Israel. Okay, second glorious privilege mentioned in verse 6, I'll take you back to verse 6 again, is being members together of one body. So you probably remember Paul uses the image of church as a body because a church consisting of one foot or dozens of feet stitched together, which sounds a bit gruesome, but anyway, that will not function well in the body, will it? In the same way, churches need people working together. No superiority of limbs because each one is needed. No one is in a church accidentally. And no one is unnecessary because we are all put together by God's design. A pastor friend who I worked with a few years ago used to say quite regularly, and I loved it, uh, he said, it's not an accident you are here. Same this morning. It is not an accident you are here. God has put you here. It's part of God's design that you're here this morning, that you're hearing the word of God, that you're responding to it, that you're listening, that you're singing together, praying together. It's not an accident you're here. You're here by God's design. What an incredible and amazing encouragement that is. God put you here this morning. Third privilege. Third glorious blessing of being together in Christ that Paul shares is that through faith in the gospel, we become sharers together in the promise of Christ, in Christ Jesus. What's that promise? Well, that promise is the Holy Spirit. That promise is the gift of God's Spirit uh, given to Christian, given to people who put their trust in the Lord Jesus, uh, spoke of uh, Jesus' last meal, his last supper, uh, when he gave the gift of the Spirit. We'll read about it in a moment. Promised by Jesus to all have faith in him. That Spirit empowers Uh, whose presence was promised in the Old Testament as the chief blessing of being the people of God. So the Lord promised in Ezekiel 36, it's up on the screen actually, 36, 26 to 27, uh, a prophecy fulfilled, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put, that just means new life, which we'll get to in a moment as well, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
Ezekiel 20, uh, 36. So in the Old Testament too, the Holy Spirit enabled prophets to speak, uh, kings to rule, judges to rescue, artists to create for God. And the prophets promised a Christ filled uh, with this same spirit, a Messiah to come who will be filled with this same spirit. And so Isaiah 11, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, speaking of this Messiah, this Christ God's anointed king to come, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. And so by faith in Christ, in faith in him, believers share, we are sharers in this same promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this spirit of God in us by faith in Christ enables ministries for Christ. Okay, I'm going to give you a bit of a list. You might think, what does the Spirit do? What does God do in His Spirit in us? Well, I've sort of got five, well, four points there, but there's a few sub points and sub sub points. So we'll be right, I think. Uh, <laughs> but follow along. And if you want to jot some things down, jot them down, it'll be good. So, what does the Spirit do? What are these ministries? For Christ, that the Spirit enables us when we put our trust in Him, because when we trust in the, when we trust in Jesus, we have God's Spirit in us. That's the promise of God. Here's the first one, and we've already sort of touched on it by these Old Testament prophecies about what will happen when the Spirit comes. He teaches us the truth about Jesus. So at His farewell meal, Jesus promised the Spirit of Truth, who will teach you all things and remi- will remind you of everything I've said to you. So that's John 14, verse 17. The Spirit then enabled the disciples to write the New Testament and enables us to understand what they wrote. That's the first little dot point there. The next one is that the Spirit enables us all to prophesy about the Lord Jesus. Now, prophecy isn't about prediction here. It's about speaking the Word of God. So obviously preachers do it, but we do it when we share um, our testimony, when we read the Word of God together, when we explain the Gospel um, to a friend, we had those Gospel conversations, we prophesy. So in Acts 2, as um, promised by the prophet Joel and by Jesus, God poured out His Holy Spirit upon all His disciples to renew them. Now this was as clear as day in Jerusalem, this renewal. Remember after Jesus was uh, crucified, what did all the disciples do? They ran and fled, didn't they? They fled in houses and buildings and quiet, wherever they were. They weren't very public, that's for sure. But here in Acts 2, what do we find them doing? These previously terrified disciples began boldly proclaiming the wonders of God. This is Acts 2 verse 11. Those wonders done by Jesus and proclaiming Him as Saviour and Lord from the Scriptures. You see that? The Spirit enables us all to prophesy, to be bold about Jesus. That's what the Spirit enables us to do. Now, since then, the Spirit empowers all believers to prophesy the wonders of God. We can all prophesy the wonders of God. If you're a Christian person, you know the wonders of God because God's worked in your life. There's a great wonder there already. Okay. I think it's my third one. It is too. The Spirit also gives new life in Christ. Now, here's the sub-points. Hang in there. Romans 8's a key passage here. When we talk about new life in Christ by the Spirit, for homework, go and read Romans 8, all right? So in Romans 8, we're told that the Spirit brings new government. <laughs> that, is, that is a mind, our minds governed by the Spirit through His Word. It's Romans 8 verse 6. Uh, also new life, Romans 8 verse 10, the Spirit gives life. Uh, Romans 8 verse 13, new battles, 
So if by the, I read Romans 8 verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. There's that, that battle between our sinful nature and living by the Spirit. Also new confidence. It's one of my favourite parts of Romans 8. This, verse 15, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him, what do we cry? We pr- cry, Abba, Father, which means that we can, we can have a personal, intimate relationship with God. Not a distant God is the unmoved mover like a, like a Muslim. No, 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 you can, you can call God Abba Father and God's Spirit convinces us of the gospel there that we can call God Father. We are all his sons and daughters in Christ as Michelle shared before as well. And that by faith in the Son we are children of God. And he grows the fruit of the Spirit in us. Now this is not Romans 8, this is more um, Galatians 5. But still, we're still on the Spirit gives new life in Christ. Uh, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we learn that by living by the Spirit, isn't, living by the Spirit isn't walking around hearing voices in our heads um, or you know, tingling with miraculous powers. It's simply serving one another in love. Now, perfection isn't possible until heaven because our sinful nature remains. But the Spirit creates this internal conflict. The Spirit makes us fight back against the devil's schemes. We'll get to that more in Ephesians 6. This internal conflict with our selfishness, but the Spirit organically grows in us the fruit of the Spirit. So those beautiful Christ-like qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I forgot one. Kindness, there it was. I went out of order. As soon as you go out of order, (laughs) I miss it all. Anyway... Finally, and we're still, this is the last one, I think. Um, Yes, this is the last one. The Spirit gives us gifts for serving the body of Christ. Again, a bit of homework if you want to. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is key here. There Paul celebrates Christ's grace gifts given to all his people for serving the church and and building others up in in the faith. That's what the gifts are for. They're not for me. They're not for ourselves. The gifts are for building others up. So what we read in um, 1 Corinthians 12, for example, is that there are many kinds of gifts. Some are extraordinary, like healing, and some are, well, arguably, bear with me, a little more mundane, like administration. Both really important. No one is given all, all the gifts. We have many or a few and develop or lose them as God chooses. Most gifts are a competence to do very well what other Christians do averagely. That's what gifts are, uh, like encouragement or helping. Some people are very good encouragers. Some people are very good helpers. But we all should be people who encourage. We all should be people who help. So with these gifts, the Spirit equips the church for building others up in, in faith and love. You see, you, you see how important the church is? <laughs> are you getting there? What a stunning privilege it is to be sharers together in this promise of God's Holy Spirit that we can contribute to the life of the local church. It's how the mystery of the gospel reveals the grace of God to us in Christ. Now surely then we know, we now know what to do with this mystery. What do you do with this mystery, this grace revealed? Well, we proclaim it, of course, don't we? We proclaim it. That's our God, that's our grace-empowered commission. 
So this is our second point of our outline, and you're pleased to know this is a little bit shorter. Um, <laughs> I'd love on point one lasts for half an hour, and then anyway. So let's go to verse uh, eight, Ephesians three, verse eight. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, I think this pause there for a moment. I think that's Paul actually referring either to his um, his his uh, his calling as an apostle. I don't actually think so. I think it's more about um, his history that Paul was a murderous, violent persecutor of the church. I think that's what it's about. Anyway, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So let's notice first Paul's role and then let's notice also uh, the role of the church. So Paul's particular role was to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain the gospel. We see that in verses 8 and 9. To proclaim the inexhaustible treasures of the marvellous spiritual blessings available to everyone in Christ. What are they? Well, get onto YouTube or even better, just read your Bible. Go back to chapter 1. There you'll find, the, in, in my words, the marvellous spiritual blessings available to everyone in Christ. There they are. You know, the three, uh, the, the three richest people in the world, you know who they are lately? I, actually, I, I looked it up just yesterday or the day before. Um, they are uh, Forbes' richest people world in the world list. That's what I googled anyway. Um, Elon Musk, he's up there. Uh, Jeff Bezos, he's the Amazon guy or founder of Amazon. Both pretty strange men, let's be honest. Um, and then this family, this guy called Bernard Annault. Arnold. Anyone heard of him? There you go. Oh, you, yes, because you heard it this morning, Beck. <laughs> yes, I know all about him. Yes, yes. But I did see a hand over there. Um, apparently, it's a fashion, fashion family. I had no idea. Obviously, you know, I'm not really into fashion. Um, but uh, the, each, um, each family or each person is worth more than 150 billion US dollars. How about that? But, but, such wealth cannot buy them one moment in heaven. Not anything. And they cannot take a cent of their fortune with them. The, the ancient pharaohs tried that and just ended up looking pretty silly, didn't they? As grave robbers, or the British, um, ended up with most of it. Um, the, without Christ, these billionaires will have nothing for eternity. Nothing without Christ. It must make us think seriously about what kind of wealth we want to acquire for ourselves and our family. It's got to. Now, you and I may not be billionaires, at least as far as I know. Let me know afterwards, by the way. Um, although our budget's looking pretty good. Um, <laughs> but we are in Christ spiritually wealthy. We're spiritually wealthy. What did, what did Paul say here? With the boundless riches of Christ. We are spiritually filthy rich with the boundless riches of Christ. You could say we are spiritual billionaires. There's the gospel. That's the gospel we need to proclaim. Okay, what about the, the role of the church then? That was Paul's role, to make that clear, and we read that in the scriptures as we read Paul's words. But what about the church? What's God's purpose for the church? Well, I think it's nothing short of breathtaking. Have a look at verse 10. God's intent or purpose was that now, through the church, that's you and I, 
through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The manifold wisdom of God is God's plan of salvation. Through the church, God, God makes that known. Through you and I, God makes that known. This beautiful wisdom of God in the gospel is displayed for all the powers in the spiritual realms to see in the rich diversity of the local church. Every local church is God's trophy cabinet. <laughs> you are God's trophy cabinet. I was going through the shed the other day, and that's a job and a half, let me tell you, and um, I found all my old trophies, uh, some, um, uh, some not as old as others, but some going right back to 1986, and there they are, I don't know why I keep them, why on earth did I keep these things? That's the question I'm asking all the time as I'm packing a house up. Why have I kept these things? Anyway, uh, I guess trophies, what do they do? They show off, you know, what you've done. Every local church is God's trophy cabinet. It shows off what God has done. Isn't that cool? Showing off God's goodness, his grace, his mercy. We are God's trophy cabinet. You know, one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of the gospel for sceptical believers is that the same Lord Jesus is worshipped by all kinds of people gathered in all kinds of churches all over the world. That just doesn't happen in, in, in Islam. It doesn't happen in Buddhism. Uh, it doesn't happen in atheism. They tend to thrive in particular cultures. But the same gospel of Christ is celebrated by Christians of every nation and cultural background. There are so many trophy cabinets around the world all celebrating the work of God through Christ. And notice too in verse 10 that the church has been watched in the heavenly realms or spiritual dimensions. It's there that the hostile powers of Satan are forced to recognise the triumph of God's eternal plan to gather people together in Christ, uh, in, in, in his church under Christ. You see, the local church unsettles Satan. He hates it. He hates what we're doing now. He hates us reading our Bibles. He hates us coming together to sing praises to God. He hates it when we pray to him. The local church unsettles Satan. Isn't that great? <laughs> I read recently, every local church, every local church gathering anywhere in the world is like one of those open-top bus champions celebrations. But instead of a football team celebrating a temporary victory in some stadium, a church gathering under Christ is a celebration of God's eternal spiritual victory over Satan, sin and death at the cross. And now, uh, well, there's this great verse in verse 12. Through faith in Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. You see, the church is for everyone. Anyone can come to Jesus, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are. Wherever we've come from, whatever we've done, through the good news of the gospel, we can confidently approach God in prayer and live in his presence here and now and one day in heaven. No longer his enemies, but his precious adopted children. Why don't we pray and then we'll see if there's any questions or comments. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to just read out as our prayer um, these verses from 14 to 21. You might want to follow them, follow along with me. Um, if you're ever short of things to pray for, come back to this passage. It's a great thing to pray for each other. Let's pray. 
So for this reason, I kneel before the Father, whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, friends, um, any, um, any questions or comments, uh, don't forget to...